Hi there. Welcome to a bonus episode for season one of The Sherry Show. That's right. We have come to the end of the first season of this particular pandemic project. But don't worry. We're just going to take a tiny bit of time off to regroup. Alas, The Sherry Show did not return. Or more accurately, it ran for only two more episodes. Before its host, Sherry Marie Harrison, realized she could not sustain the production schedule she had set for herself on top of everything else she was doing. But you should check out the archive, which remains available. And today, you're going to hear selections from a lost episode, recorded in April of 2021. So what's really great about doing this show with Matt today is that it was when I talked with you for the podcast that you run for the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College about New Black Gothic and Lovecraft Country. I had such a fun time. It was such a great conversation, just energized for days yeah. after. And like the feeling that I've had for like years, literally like three years, Matt, I even bought like one of those Yeti microphones three years ago saying, I'm going to start a podcast. I'm going to do this thing. And it just never really got off the ground. And so it was that conversation that made me feel like, okay, I actually want to talk to a bunch of people about stuff. (laughs) It was the thing that clicked. I know I didn't want to just be a talking head talking to myself, a solo podcast, but just, you know, the shape of conversations. So when I thought about doing this sort of reflection on meta podcasting, Mm. I thought Matt is who I want to talk to about this because you do this podcast for the center. I wanted to ask you first off, how did the idea for the American Vandal come about? Like why a podcast? Mm-hmm. So we started talking, much like you said, you started thinking about this medium several years ago. Mm-hmm. And the director of the Center for Mark Twain Studies, Joe Lamack, and I, we started talking about it at least two or three years ago. Here's a medium that we think might be useful to the center, it's a medium that both of us are consuming with mm-hmm. some regularity, and therefore we're familiar with it. We see some of the advantages that it might bring, but we didn't have any kind of technical know-how. <laughs> right? That part. And that part is key. And in 2019, we saw that C- the C-19, the Society for 19th Century Americanists, also has a podcast, and they crowdsource it. They have a couple of editors, a couple of people with technical experience who help scholars who want to make a kind of audio episode fulfill their imagination. And so we're like, let's try this. Let's see how it goes. Mm -hmm. And that episode, which you can find both on our feed, on the American Vandal feed or on the C-19 feed, was about the the history of what Max Eastman calls the gospel of revolt in Mm -hmm. Elmira. And so it tells the story of this place where Mark Twain wrote most of his most famous works. And... I had a great time writing, producing, (laughs) creating that episode, but it took me months of being my sort of primary objective. Mm -hmm. 
And the response was great. There were lots of people who clearly tuned in. And we had this document then that when people asked, what is the history of Mark Twain and Elmira? We could say, okay, here's a, you can go to the website, you can read these essays, or you can go to listen to this podcast. And that's been very valuable to us. But when we got done with it, we said, okay, this is too much work. We just don't have the time, we don't have the labor power to dedicate to this. Mm-hmm. And so we put it on the back burner thinking this is something we'd like to explore more at some point, but we don't have the capability right now. And we had several then scholars who, who either listened to our episode or who were thinking about podcast and audio ideas reach out to us, but nothing ever went anywhere. And then COVID happened. Mm-hmm. And the center's programming, much of it is in person. You've been here for the Cord yep. Farm Symposium that happens yep. every year. We have a massive international conference that happens every four years. We do three different lecture series throughout the year uh, on an annual basis. The Center for Mark Twain Studies is this in-person programming. These scholars coming to Elmira to do their own research and to engage with each other and with the, the Twain Studies community. Right. And that was all on hold Went away. indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, we started thinking, if ever there was a time to see what can happen with the podcast, this is it, right? It's something <laughs> that we can do remotely. Certainly, we didn't have any more time or labor to dedicate to it, mm-hmm. but we thought we have to take this opportunity because we also have to show the Mark Twain Foundation and the friends of the Mark Twain Center, people who give us money and support right. us, that we were continuing to fulfill our mission even mm-hmm. during this time. And so this mm-hmm. was one way to pursue that. Mm-hmm. And we thought we'll try it out during covid during the pandemic, see what happens. We'll throw some stuff against the wall. We yeah. weren't sure exactly what the episodes were going to look like. We started thinking, all right, the people who were going to come here and give lectures, we'll have them just give their lecture as a podcast, or we'll put a couple of those together, or we'll do interviews with them about the book that they just published. And That's so... Good. We started trying different things during that first season. You were uh, probably our fourth or fifth episode. Um, And that was the first episode that I had said, I want to try something that's a little bit off the wall, right? Right. To to do an episode about Lovecraft Country Mm -hmm. is not really directly related to Mark Twain. But this is one of the cool things that you do, though. You totally are able to to have these episodes that don't immediately. So like the episode on the letters that Francis Dickey was a part of, right? There is the connection that you can still sort of, you. it's a gift, Matt. It's a gift. <laughs> when I started the website a few years ago, one of the things I said to Joe is, we've got to think about the role of the center as no thread too thin. As long as there's a yeah. thread that can connect it to Twain, we've got to do that. And, yeah. and I really think Twain deserves that because mm-hmm. the range and diversity and depth of his material in his life, unfortunately, I think has not been adequately and 
and uh, fully explore. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that, that the center does and that we specifically have been doing with the podcast is saying, look, you may not think that the Gothic, <laughs> the new black Gothic is something that is related to Twain, but it could be. And we'd like to see more scholarship that does that. Or you might not think, we recently did an episode that'll be coming out next week on the Raoul Peck documentary, oh, Exterminate oh, All the oh, Brutes. Oh, 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 oh. You may not see the direct connection to Twain, but I do. It's I absolutely there. do. It's, it's, right? it's, it's, and yeah. this isn't a thing that happened just because of like the pandemic, right? Or the need to continue to make sure that the mission of the center remained viable for fun. You had a Caribbeanist at a Quarry Farm Symposium, actually two Caribbeanists at the Quarry Farm Symposium. And this is work that you've been doing with Joe at the center for a while now. And even if it's like the thin thread, it's what's this is twain. It's like me realizing, oh no, I can't talk about contemporary fiction unless I start to read some Mark Twain. We were headed down that route. As you know, you came mm -hmm. to the Quarry Farm Symposium in, I think, 2017 or 2018. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we were already trying to think about expanding what we think of as Mark Twain studies. But more recently than that, Joe dug up the documentation for the founding of the center and for the gift that the Langdon family gave of Quarry Farm and the Mark Twain study to Elmira College. And what he found was that Jerry Jervis Langdon was talking in this way when he gave the gift in the first place. He expressly mentions Mark Twain and his world, and he gives a list of fairly canonical 19th century American <laughs> authors who he thinks deserves to be part of this definition. But you can see that he's already anticipating that holding a candle for Twain should mean holding a candle for a lot of other things right. that Twain cared about. And so that's part of what we've been trying to do. I think like super successfully because the range of scholars that you get to talk on this podcast, like there are a lot of podcasts right now with academics and scholars and, you know, in part two, to continue to maintain the vitality of an intellectual community. Right. But also just going back to this Peck episode that's coming out, Exterminate All the Brutes, just the scholars that you have in conversation there to think through this episode. It's really incredible the conversation that happens and the depth depth of, of intellectual engagement that happens through putting those people together. And I think this is a part of what's super interesting about the American Vandal podcast for me, too, because it's just like, how do you arrange this listening experience that is it's not just about yet yeah, sure we have a really fun time talking to each other about this will people want to listen to this right. Mm -hmm. But I think you've gotten that down really well. Most of the interviews I do for the American Vandal begin with a period of warming up, an exchange which may or may not be part of the published episode, but which is predicated on the assumption that the quality of conversation improves as guests become more comfortable. So topics introduced early on are more likely to elicit awkward and rote responses, but should be designed to help the guest feel at ease. In my experience, every guest will eventually get warmed up. But the time it takes varies, and the longer it takes, the more likely I blame myself. But there are very rare guests who need no warming up. It's as if they enter the chat already in the middle of a thought. I just have to press record and try to become the interlocutor they imagined when the thought began. Joe Locke, the composer and vibraphonist whose latest album, Macram, is the soundtrack to this series, is one such guest. 
If you'd like to hear more about the genesis of that album, his development as a composer, and the interrelationship of the aesthetic, technical, and ethical sides of his music, check out the portions of our conversation which appear in episode four and eight of Criticism Limited. But we began by talking about a podcast, and not just any podcast. It's really interesting, man. Someone just turned me on to, what's the Malcolm Gladwell podcast? Revisionist history. history. Yeah. Yeah. And somebody sent this to me, and I'm not sure why they sent it, but it was so up my alley. And the reason it was up up my alley, it was about culturally, why do country Western songs, why are the most popular country Western songs the saddest ones? And why is the most popular rock and roll songs the most generic in their emotionality? The episode Joe's referring to, The King of Tears, was part of the second season of Gladwell's anthology podcast published in the summer of 2017. I probably don't need to tell you, but Malcolm Gladwell was the king of the airport bestseller in the aughts. He sold tens of millions of books by mining behavioral psychology research and then using his talents as a reporter and storyteller to churn out digestible theories of everything. Between the year 2000 and 2013, he published five books, all of which were bestsellers, and three of which are among the best-selling books of the 21st century so far. But in 2016, he launched Revisionist History. Two years later, he founded his own podcast network. And that's where he's devoted his attention ever since. He's published only two books in the last decade, and even they have been designed, by his own admission, to imitate the podcast form and be distributed foremost as audiobooks. As he put it to Bill Simmons on a podcast in 2019. This book's been out for how long? One week. And the actual hardcover is selling 70% as much as the audiobook. The audiobook, so right now, yeah, we are, the number of audiobooks, so we did a special audiobook. This is super interesting. And we did a special audiobook where the audiobook is produced like a podcast. So you hear, I don't read someone's quote in the audio, I give you the tape and I, we have scoring. We've got a song from Janelle Monae, which is a theme song of the thing, and we use archival tape and it's like, Totally, it's like listening to 10 consecutive revisionist history podcasts. If you listen to the book, 10 chapters, 10. Five years from now, what percentage, how small would the percentage of physical books be? Is everyone going to be, is that going to be the primary way you consume some large number of, of authors? So I'm trying to process all this because I'm, I'm stunned that I would have expected a higher number, but not for it to beat the number. Bill, this happened in like two years that everything flipped. And a random group of people with compelling voices I suddenly think, went to the, to the head of the line. And, and they do this every, I, it re, the serial thing bothers me when they were like, and when serial podcast took off, it's like podcasts had already taken off. Narrative podcasts took off with serial, but podcasts had been around yeah. for a while yeah. doing really well. Trust me. What's, what's changed, I think, right now when we talk about revolution steps is could could this could audiobooks and podcasts replace books? Well, that's the question. So why, ten years from now, do I put out a physical book at all? Is it an after, or or is it simply an afterthought? Do I do an audiobook, and then someone sees it and says, "Do you mind if I turn that into a physical physical book?" And I'm like, "Okay, sure." By all indications, Gladwell has been acting according to this speculation, and his turn from print to audio has been imitated by several other popular nonfiction authors like Michael Lewis and James Andrew Miller. 
And revisionist history is just the most glaring example of a trend that has implications for fiction and academic publishing as well. For many people, across all demographics, podcasts and audiobooks have replaced print books. And in some cases, even films, as their preferred medium for long-form narratives and arguments. As the genres for print and video consumption are getting shorter, audio genres do not seem to be feeling any of that pressure. In 2018, Apple removed their long-standing file size limit on podcast uploads because there was such demand for longer episodes. And many of the most popular podcasts in the world now regularly turn in episodes which are two hours or longer. Since 2017, Gladwell has produced over 65 hours of content for the Revisionist History feed alone. That's not including his podcast-like audiobooks or his contributions to other shows in the Pushkin network he oversees. To put this in perspective, the total runtime of the audiobook editions of the five big idea books that made him famous in the aughts is only about 45 hours. He's as productive as ever. And his work in this new medium demonstrates many of his characteristic strengths and weaknesses. Which brings us back to Joe Locke's critique. It was really interesting, man. Like my whole thing in, in my music is connecting, is not showing how smart. I, a lot of jazz musicians do this, man. They want to show you how smart they are. Yeah. And my whole thing is connecting. And I have this whole thing about where we really connect with one another is not in our accomplishments. They distinguish us from one another. But where we really connect with one another is in our failures, our heartbreak, our addictions. All those places where we hurt is where we really connect with one another. And Malcolm Gladwell said some stuff I really agreed with and some stuff that I really think he omitted, like really terribly omitted in this interview with Bobby Braddock. I'm genuinely interested in this question of what is he omitting? Yeah. Well, here's what he's omitting is that he quoted, I was writing this down so I could bring it up with you. He says, which I agree with, man. He says, what makes us emotional about a song? And he talks about in rock and roll where you definitely have like a cultural rainbow coalition of different people from different cultures. But in order for that song to touch many different cultures, people from different experiences, it has to become general in the message of the song. Whereas in country western music where there's a specific group subculture of people who are being spoken to you can get more specific because you're not going to alienate any of that subgroup he says and also in hip-hop it's the same thing you're dealing with an urban black experience so you can speak to that but in rock and roll you have to be more general first of all i understand the concept of that because you can alienate. It's almost like a TV show that wants to get as many people. You have to leave out swear words because that might offend. Mm-hmm. Or you have to leave out lesbian issues because that might offend. Or, But I think those things that really touch us, resonate with us, are human and don't have to do with culture. Mm-hmm. They have to do with our humanity, which include all of us. But the one thing that really bothered me, Matt, and that, and that he really omitted is he talking about Bobby Braddock and talking about how country Western music, they really talk about emotion and the sadness of human experience in this deeply personal way. And he's romanticizing it. Yeah. But then he says his father was a citrus grower in Florida. Mm. And I just read The Warmth of Other Suns. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the people talked about in Warmth of Other Sons who made that migration up the East Coast escaping terrorism was a black orange picker in Florida. At the same time Bobby Braddock was growing up, he left because he was trying to unionize and he left to save his life because they were going to lynch him for trying to start a union. Mm-hmm. And what I say to that is, well, isn't it beautiful that white country Western singers can sing about the beauty and sadness of the personal experience, but they don't have a fucking clue about the experience of their fellow man who their own fathers are mm-hmm. terrorizing. Yeah. And that's what I thought was like, how could you omit this? I was waiting mm-hmm. for him to bring it up and I went, how can the brilliant Malcolm Gladwell <laughs> not address this elephant in the room that yeah. you don't even think is there? And the whole industry of country music is so you know, defined by its particular labor situation, right? The Nashville sound, the Nashville machine, right? Maybe as much as any genre of music, country has been marshaled through a particular infrastructure. And whenever a musician tries to critique or expand that infrastructure, I'm thinking recently of some examples like Jason Isbell and- Jason Isbell, yeah, great, man. The Dixie Chicks, I, I, I think now. I was just gonna say the Dixie Chicks, man. It's like they were like the Beatles saying that they were more popular than Jesus, man. Yeah, we don't get to see very many country musicians examine the labor infrastructure in which their music is produced because as soon as they do they are ostracized or the presumption is they've gone pop that they have somehow abandoned their roots um and i think yeah you're absolutely right there has been a sort of long slow denial of the proletarian origins of country music that we now completely gloss over because the industry is so powerful and so homogenous. And, yeah. it's, so, and it's so racist, man. And yes, it, exactly. And it, because I, I have to say, man, as somebody for whom, as a musician, for whom storytelling is the most important thing, I agree that storytelling in country Western music is unbelievably finely wrought and poetic. It's mm-hmm. beautiful, man. In the podcast, he talks about the George Jones s- s- song, The Day He Stopped Loving Her, or that famous song. And it's about someone who loves a woman until the day, day until... I'm sorry, I'm crying now. Yeah, yeah. It's about he stopped loving her. When did he stop loving her? The day he was put in his grave because his love for her was so strong. Unbelievably beautiful song. Unbelievably beautiful connective song. But what gets me is that's wonderful that you can be so in tune with with this sadness and be able to tell these beautiful stories, but it's like American history itself. What are we omitting as we tell those beautiful, poignant stories? What stories are being ignored? That's all I'm saying, and it's like, it pissed me off because that's wonderful and that's touchy-feely, and I'm the most touchy-feely cat you'd ever <laughs> want to meet. But when those stories are being told to the detriment of other people whose stories need to be told that you're happy to ignore it's it just it's just it's typical of our culture that's all my fear is that gladwell's elision of the class and race politics of country music is as much about the medium in which he's working as gladwell's own personal blind spots now it would be very convenient for me of course to agree with gladwell that podcasts are a fundamentally literary form, 
the logical successor to books, and moreover, that the sonic collision of voices oscillating in conversation is the purest manifestation of the dialectic. Very convenient. But I spent too much of my childhood in radio studios to be utopian about audio. My father spent nearly half a century as a disc jockey. He played straight man to a comic on a goofy morning show, spun your top 40 favorites for the drive time, and made sultry love to the night shift. But all the while, as in the rest of his professional pursuits, he dedicated himself to getting black art music, jazz, blues, and soul before the public, and always met with resistance from ownership, even when his shows were winning their time slots. So while I find podcast adaptation from print models pretty enticing, I also think podcasts most directly descend from a very conservative media genealogy. Talk radio in particular has given us the prosperity gospel, the religious right, coach worship, and as much as any medium, Trumpism. And while there is much evidence that podcasting is less homogeneous, a quick glance at the Spotify charts suggests the migration of conservative talk radio has been pretty seamless. There's a moment in that Bill Simmons interview where Malcolm Gladwell acknowledges one of the figures who inspired his turn to audio. So the book came out, and I, and I said to somebody beforehand, because I was in England, and uh, my English publisher said, you know, Jordan Peterson's book in England, the audiobook outsells the physical book. And I was like, really? Because historically, the audiobook is like 10% of total sales. Yeah. But what was happening was that a generation, he has a lot of very, very young followers who experienced him online, and they were, for him, he, for them, they, he was a digital phenomenon. And so when he put out a book, they just, they want, they've been listening to him on YouTube or listening to his, they just want to listen to him. And so what happened with me is I think the same thing has happened is that a whole universe of podcast listeners who tend to be much younger, who know me from revisionist history, not from my previous books, are just migrating over and getting the book. Like, oh, a book's come out. Oh, I'm going to listen to it. At its origins, broadcast radio was also often heralded as the new media heir to existing literary traditions. But late capitalist radio became defiantly anti-intellectual, anti-humanist, regressive and repressive. And it's been that way for at least half of the lifetime of the medium. So how do podcasts avoid the same trajectory? In this episode, I'm going to be talking to academic podcasters about the undeniable promise but also pitfalls of podcasting criticism. Hi. Theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. This week's episode is based on a paper that we gave at the 2023 Modern Language Association Convention in San Francisco. As part of the panel, 
Literary Criticisms, New Platforms, organized by Anna Cornblue for the Literary Criticism Forum. You met the co-hosts of High Theory, Kim Adams and Sharon Basu, way back in episode two. We structured our remarks in response to four questions, which we will ask each other in turn, that are a little bit different from the regular High Theory fair. I was on this MLA panel with them in January, and some of the questions they asked really resonated with me stuck with me throughout the making of Criticism Limited. How does the experience of listening within our contemporary lived contexts change the substance and style of criticism today? So in 2019, before COVID, before we started High Theory, I went to an N plus one launch party. It was winter in New York, the basement of a hotel in Midtown, with a bar that didn't seem to be serving drinks and a giant wall of speakers that seemed to serve solely decorative purposes. One of the editors read aloud an opening monologue about podcasts. What I recall is a line about intimacy, their voices so close to our ears. Reading back, the editors make a claim about media history. Podcasts were the first medium designed to be listened to primarily on headphones by a single person. They suggest that the form lends itself to binge listening. Each episode, a smooth little capsule, perfectly self-contained, can be popped one after another. Binge listening implies a kinship between podcasts and the golden age of television. The episodic structure makes consumption a process of easy repetition, where everything feels like packaging and waste. Streaming media, unlike radio and TV of another era, imagines a solitary individual receiver, isolated and choosing for themselves. Following this logic, we could trace the contemporary boom in humanities podcasting to the isolation protocols encountered by knowledge workers during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And in truth, our podcast was a pandemic project made possible by a newfound facility with digital media and comfort conducting virtual conversations, not to mention the lack of venues for academic authors to promote their books. But as the N plus one article suggests, this dynamic of isolation and intimacy was already well underway in 2019. An Americanist colleague gave me an alternate explanation, that podcasts satisfy the neoliberal obsession with multitasking. We can learn about Sylvia Winter as we wash the dishes, catch up on political gossip as we fold the laundry, review Orientalism as we drive to work. Isolation is reinscribed as productivity. As you heard at the top of this episode, American Vandal launched in the fall of 2020 was, like High Theory, part of the pandemic podcasting boom. And I agree wholeheartedly that neoliberal rationality should be regarded as among the forces driving both production and reception of podcasts, both pre- and post-pandemic. The question I ask at the beginning and end of each season is, what is this podcast doing for its listeners? And I have sometimes answered, purely speculatively, that it's making them feel more productive. And this was a feeling confirmed by Howard Ramsey, the distinguished research professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, who you may remember discussing blogs and the racial tokenism of book reviews in previous episodes. 
His podcast, Remarkable Receptions, launched just last year, but he's already produced 85 episodes. And it's one of my favorite academic podcasts right now. In part, I think, because in form, it could not be more different from The American Vandal. Since the 1970s, scholars have produced extensive examinations of works by Black authors. But one African-American novelist in particular has been written about in scholarly articles far more than others. You're listening to Remarkable Receptions, a podcast about popular and critical responses to African-American novels. Who is the African-American novelist whose works have generated the most scholarly attention? Well, of course, it's Toni Morrison. I, I love this podcast for a number of reasons. I appreciate it. It's one of the podcasts I listen to the moment it drops. And maybe the part of the reason I can do that is I know it's only going to take five minutes. Right? Oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> I, I live around the corner from my campus, but I can consume a whole episode of Remarkable Receptions on my way to work. Right. And it challenged me again in a range of ways, but among them is my perspective on podcasting. I, I have rationalized my approach to academic podcasting to the American Vandal by arguing that it's a medium that's collaborative, unscripted, spontaneous, long form at a time when monographs and journal articles and book reviews are all getting shorter. Nobody complains when an episode of the American Vandal is 90 minutes long. Oh, yeah. And at a time when conference attendance and travel funding and other resources for sort of social and collaborative professionalization are drying up, I can replace them to some degree with conversational podcasts. But Remarkable Receptions, as I mentioned, it's like the length of a commercial break. And <laughs> it's carefully scripted and heavily produced, mm -hmm. usually by a single author, although obviously there's less visible collaboration happening to make mm -hmm. it sound as good as it does. And so I'm hoping you'd tell us a little bit about how did Remarkable Receptions come into being, yeah. why you thought the podcast was the right medium for doing the kind of critical work that it does, and how you shaped it in this somewhat idiosyncratic way. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for all of that. I don't know if you noticed at the beginning, we did have these longer episodes. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I was just following. I thought you had to do that. As yeah. a partner, but fortunately, I saw some that were short. And so we just tried out some. And we're like, oh, wow. People were like, those are the ones people gave response to. And it was just like you said, hey, I'm a busy person. So that's what people would say to us. So I say, but I can fit little chunks of something in. But I'll say this is how it began and even had that title. So I've I've been tracing various writers. I'm into bibliography work. So I would trace their reception, starting with Richard Wright. That was my early person. And I was just so fascinated how people would write about the responses to him and just doing these large bibliographies on him. Anyway, so I'm tracing various writers. One writer I started tracing as his career develops is ta Coates, going back to blogging. So I was just tracing responses to his work. And then he has this moment. He publishes... The Case for Reparations article. Then he publishes the book, Between the World and Me. And then he publishes comic book, Black Panther. And I noticed in that span, it was just a lot of attention around his work. So I wrote this article just talking about responses to him over like a three-year period. And I called the article, The Remarkable Reception of Ta-Nehisi Coates. So that idea just was sticking in my head. I said, oh, wow, maybe I can do that on some other writers as well. And so I ended up doing that, just thinking about another writer I follow quite a bit is Colson Whitehead. 
And I was just thinking about it. And then an opportunity came up. I was working with the Project on the History of Black Writing at the University of Kansas. We were about to pitch an idea for Mellon Grant. And they made a mistake and asked me, did I have any ideas? And so I was like, of course. And so I said, hey, let's do a podcast and let's call it Remarkable Receptions. And it'll be about responses to various novels. I knew their focus was novels, the Project on the History of Black Writing. That's Miriam McGram. So I said, oh, it'll be on novels just to, you know, to get it by. And when I said podcast, I had been listening to podcasts for some years and I started thinking, maybe that's something I can get into. That'll be a medium for me. I was nervous about it or just unsure, but I had been like that with blogging. So I said, maybe it's like that. So my colleague, Liz Callie, she helped me edit it. And then we reached out to uh, various folks. And that's the thing too. Professors tend to be like, and you can remove some of the barriers from them. So when I first did, I said, okay, we had a little funding. So I said, we can hire a voice actor. So all you have to do is write your piece. Mm-hmm. But then another barrier came when I said, hey, just make it 300, 325 words instead of however long an article is. Actually, it feels like filling in the gaps because even though podcasting is big, I don't think it's so big with literature. It's weird because we the people writing and all of this stuff, but mm-hmm. we don't have a big presence in podcasts for some reason. You might know better than me, but anyway, they gave me a certain kind of energy and a sense of purpose to be doing these things on the podcast episode. So I really enjoy it and pulling it together. So I was excited to talk to you about it because I know you have a much more, I don't know what to call it, a large operation. And I love that it's connected to like a writer. Mm. That's that's great to me. So anyway. Yeah, that has served us. It's both an organizing, much as your idea of reception. I want to talk about that a little bit more. But much as your idea of reception is something that can allow you to organize and bring in all these different things, but always with the central idea is to capture something about the reception. That's how Twain has worked for us, is that our podcast captures a lot of things, but we always think about like, how does it come back to Twain? How does it reveal mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. about Twain? Mm-hmm. Or allow us to think about how his work can be redeployed and reutilized in a contemporary context. And just to give listeners who may not have tried Remarkable Receptions yet a sense of it, the most recent season, you said it started off about novelists, right? So the most recent season had episodes on the playwright August Wilson, on black comic book characters from the Marvel Universe, Blade and Storm, on a mystery novelist turned TV writer, Nichelle Tramble Spellman, yeah. a pulp novelist, Mark Olden, <laughs> yeah. and on then African-American lit offerings at your home institution, SIUE. Mm-hmm. So you, you take this concept of reception in a wide variety of directions. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about like how by doing this and trying to think about reception, not just like where you started with Tanahishi Coates, right? Okay, so here's this really popular writer mm-hmm. writing for mainstream publications who is publishing memoirs and novels. Here's somebody who, you know, the mechanisms for reception are 
pretty much standardized, right? Yeah. But it's very different when you're talking about Blade. Right? <laughs> and so how did your conception of what a reception history is change by virtue of trying to apply that idea to this wide variety of different genres and characters and mediums? Yeah, I think some of it just come from talking to various folks. Hey, what are you reading and how have people responded to that thing? And so the comic book thing started because... I started slowly including those because I co-teach a comic book class and I've taught it for the last few years. And what's interesting about it, it's on diversity in comic books, but I've been teaching at this university for 20 years now. God. Anyway, <laughs> I've been teaching here and teaching most Latin American lit classes, right? And you know how it is. You, oh, the class offers come up and few people sign up here and there, but it's amazing to me how people would respond to this comic book class I was teaching. And they were just very into it. And so it's had me thinking about that idea that even though it's comic books, but many of the students, they're young folks, 18 and 20, they don't know comic books, but they know the movies for those comic books really well and the television shows. So I was fascinated by the idea that I was like, oh, wow, look at all these different genres people are into. And just depending on what genre you're in, you might be somebody's big or somebody's not. And so I think I've just been very fascinated by that and wanted to move across more and more just trying to catch in different genres because I think the rules slightly change or if the rules don't change, the who's big changes. And it's generational, too. For me, one of the best examples is the boondocks. Mm -hmm. So I'll mention the boondocks to people, Aaron Magruder. And there's an age thing, like people of a certain age, they'd be like, oh, I know of the comic strip. And then I mentioned, what about the television show? They said, oh, there's a television show. On the other hand, I'll talk to people under a certain age and they'd be like, oh, I know the television show. They say it was a comic strip too. So just that idea that you, there can be this one product and there can be things in different spaces. That excites me. So I'm always just talking to folks, seeing if people are interested in doing guest posts for me or I'll just try to figure out what's something that I can do to help just enlarge this idea of reception i feel like i'm rambling through that but that's how it feels to me in some ways uh, yeah, just yeah. Rambling through those kind it's of things constantly growing i mean when you're talking about the relationship you had to comic books compared to the one that your students have and the way in which there's this entirely framed through an initial interaction with the films based upon the marvel and dc characters right i remember reading you know, Blade and the Night Stalkers and the whole Midnight Suns universe back in the 90s. And one of the things that episode captures is Wesley Snipes becomes Blade in those films. Yeah. You know, one of the things that episode captures is we might not have the MCU, right? Like this oh, yeah. massive property. If Blade doesn't get Marvel through a really rough time, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other movies were really working, mm -hmm. right? And the, the company was in trouble. And one of the only success stories that comic book movies have from the 90s and early 2000s is Blade, right? Yeah. And yeah, so you nah. have this black character, one of the rare black characters in the Marvel cinematic or in the Marvel comic book universe going back to the 1970s, who then is this bridge <laughs> to mm -hmm. the explosion and the power yeah. of the Marvel brand in the 21st century. And I thought that's a way mm -hmm. that I never would have thought about that character without the way it was presented in that podcast. Yeah, yeah, nah, you're right. It's, to me, this takes us back to this larger issue, though, too, of just how blogging, 
podcasting. It's like just so crucial to capture a certain kind of history in an accessible way because things just change so quickly that folks won't even realize that was a thing. Like it's getting to the point where like, you know, they'd be like, Blade was this or, you know, there'd be certain actors. People say, oh, that actor. Here's one. I was thinking about it with my students reading because we have in the works, we're going to eventually do an episode on casting Viola Davis. Mm-hmm. And this came because my grad student and I were talking to my undergrads and they are young enough to where they were like, oh, Viola Davis has always been around. <laughs> but I was just like, for those of us who are over 25, she just recently became a thing. But for them in their span of years, as they said, she's always been here. So I think that's just crucial that we can have these forms. And it gets back to your big issues on criticism. Like, I think the literary history role of criticism is crucial. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's missing. And you can't always even do that in the articles that I'm saying. It's not always the space to capture certain things like of the moment. And certainly you can't turn things around that quickly. Because you get an article, and this is no shade to the journals because they've been useful in all kinds of ways. So that preface, but you will get an article accepted and it might take, a couple of years yeah. just to come out. So mm-hmm. that's another big thing. I hate to turn negative, but that crisis you mentioned, that's like part of that. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. There is an immediacy to the podcast, mm-hmm. which, which is very valuable, I think. Yeah. There's, there's real capital in that. Mm-hmm. It seems as though part of Remarkable Receptions is that you're editing every episode and you're writing several episodes each season, but it also seems like you're looking for other writers and scholars oh, to, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. to produce scripts for the podcast. And so what is that process? Do you have an application process? Uh, you know, are you recruiting people? Like, What is the means by which something goes from an idea to an episode? You get on the Twain American <laughs> Vandal podcast and, and you let them know that you're that's the, this the biggest recruitment i've ever had right here so uh now nah, people can just contact me and some of the folks i know courtney thorson for instance she did a piece on tony moore and i just knew about her out in the field I said, oh she's writing on tony morrison so i contacted her and she was willing to do a piece for anika henderson she had a book on popular literature of the 90s so i contacted her and said, i don't know you i'm just out of the blue but would you be willing to do something on Terry McMillan? But actually, nobody's, it's weird. Nobody's contacted me yet. I was so excited when you met, you know how it is in these spaces. You don't even yeah. know you have an audience. Aside from, you know, you email it to your family and say, hey, I did this podcast. So anyway, I was excited to get people to contribute because I do want it to be much more public when mm-hmm. trying to reach out there. I feel you. Yeah, you, you get these download numbers and you don't really know what to make of it, yeah. right? It's a good lesson for everybody listening. Like, we love to hear. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Get an email. That, oh, I listened to this episode and this yeah, is something yeah. I thought about it. I definitely look forward to those because mm-hmm. it means a lot more than, you know, he gave us a rating on Spotify. What <laughs> you saying that had me thinking, I guess going all the way back, how you started this conversation with just traditional journal articles, those famous folks, they know, I guess they hear back because they quoted us and that. But by and large, yeah, you don't get feedback on that either. I think you and I expect it because we came, like, our blogging world, you were seeing people responding in real time to that. Yeah. It was a big thing. So we've come to, in that part of our lives, expect it. But if we look back over, yeah, most people just don't get responses to anything they're writing. That's actually something I think about with Remarkable Exceptions, too, is start one direction I started wanting to go in is 
to chart the absence or the indifference is remarkable. Because mm. I don't think we think about that enough, how little, like my uh, younger brother, Kenton, and I just built a data set of 1,200 novels by Black writers, let's say 200 at the most. There's an article or something written on, but the overwhelming majority, nobody's talking about those. The silence is deafening. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's definitely something you feel as an academic frequently. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. All this time and effort into making a, a <laughs> book or a journal article yeah. for years and years, not just of the production phase, but then you wait for it to come out. <laughs> yeah. And then sometimes there's nothing. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and as you said, that's one way it's gotten worse in the last few years. Yeah. With COVID and everything else, journals are struggling to get readers and reviewers. Presses are struggling to get reviewers for manuscripts, the production, the supply chains, like everything is so slow. Yeah. So I know some people who had books come out in 2020 and 2021. And Me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there does nothing. Like not oh my God. the bare bones that they had come to expect from the previous decade. And yeah. yeah. That's one area where you're right. Re thinking about reception is really important because mm -hmm. when you spend that kind of time and energy on something and you may know that some copies are selling some articles are getting downloaded you may have the metrics to say oh i guess people are reading it but if they're not making some kind of effort to review it to respond to it even to just email you and say i like this right mm -hmm. then it does sometimes feel like it's all for naught yeah, nah, that's a good word. Yeah, I feel like now you got me all thinking about my head is running in all kind of directions now. When my second book came out three years ago this month and it was COVID, so you couldn't do anything. And this feels like a champagne problem, by the way, to be even talking about right. that because there was right. much larger problems than some dude who got a book and nobody cares because it's COVID. But then juxtapose that to what we're doing with podcasting. And I think about just the level of productivity. Mm -hmm those podcasts just come out and the blog entries i've put out so many blog entries over the years god and even the podcast you know i'm up to like 70 episodes that's amazing it's almost like that's part of the thing you have to do though that makes it a challenge and good too you're out there constantly producing so anyway i can go on and on, on this <laughs> that's the point right? <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> digital audio production perform the work of literary criticism within the new media landscape. Like much under our sun, these habits are not entirely new. The history of public education in radio form in several cultural contexts is marked by the co-location of everyday work and absorption of sound information that takes the listener out of the ordinary temporal idiom by promising futures with better economic and social capital. The critical theorist Theodore Adorno worked on one such radio program in the 1940s, albeit a short-lived one, run by the Princeton Radio Project. Listening to radio in your drawing room is, I quote, atomized listening for Adorno. The, quote, sound is no longer larger than the individual, and the surrounding function of music also disappears. End quote. Radio makes a piece of music an object of analysis for the listener by reframing it sonically between concert hall and drawing room. The edited nature of podcasts problematizes the voice, whether it is an uncut hour, 
maintaining all the ums and coughs in the hum of the ambient, or a heavily polished product with strategic placement of music and sound effects. Taking care not to draw simplistic analogs, we ask what the Humanities Podcast can do for criticism and theory by reframing the sound of academic discourse from lecture halls, seminar rooms, and the reader's sub-vocalization to headphones and car stereos. I wanted to talk a little bit and switch a little bit, though, about the technical Mm know-how, because I figured Squadcast was a way to record based on recording with you on Squadcast and then came up against all kinds of technical things like, what the hell is an RSS feed? Where do I get one of those? What do you mean something needs to host my podcast? Can't I just like throw it up there into the (laughs) internet, right? What did the process of the technical know-how look like for you? So, again, the luxury that we have, I, I'm sort of the, the producer face of the institution, mm-hmm. is we had not a large budget by any means, mm-hmm. but we had some budget to throw mm-hmm. at this. Mm-hmm. And so we made a small investment at the start with a, a company called Resonate Recordings, mm-hmm. who would do all of that set, that initial setup, right? Get us on an RS feed, put us on all of the major platforms, and then... Also, on an a la carte basis, they would do different levels of editing and mixing, right? Mm -hmm, And so for mm -hmm. a certain price, you can do just make sure the sound levels are all decent. For a much higher price, you can have them take out all the gaps, all the ums, all the Mm -hmm. likes, right? However you want your Mm -hmm. podcast edited, you can have them do that for you. Now, we had a few episodes early on that we went through that, particularly because we hadn't found the soundscape that we were comfortable with. But pretty soon it became clear that if we wanted it edited, it was going to have to be me doing that. I became increasingly of the opinion that if we were going to do any editing, I had to take responsibility for that because I didn't want things being removed that I thought contributed to not just what was being said, but the kind of emotional content that is contained in these episodes, right? This has been the thread, and I think you'll find this interesting. This is the thread that I've been walking, right? Is that on the one hand, I believe that a conversational podcast, its appeal is the feeling that you are part of that conversation when you're listening. Right? Yes, yes, yes. But you're not really because mm-hmm. you don't get to contribute, right? No. And so I feel you could like yell. The, you could yell at the. Yeah, oh, you could, exactly. <laughs> but the, in, in my opinion, the trade off you give then to your listener is I'm going to get rid of all the excess. You won't get to participate, but this conversation that took an hour and a half, I'm going to find a way to boil it down to Mm -hmm. an hour or 50 Mm -hmm. minutes. And I'm going to try to do that without you losing anything Mm -hmm. of substance. Mm -hmm. And that for your loss of ability to participate, your gain will be that you can have this conversation in a much shorter time period and it will be much more direct. You won't have to listen to us trying to find what we want to talk about. That stuff will all get filtered out. Mm -hmm. Early on, as I got into doing the editing myself, 
I got to the point where I was like, every stutter I'm getting rid of, every um, every like, every, every gap. you know, every <laughs> gap, right? But when you listen to our podcast, you'll notice that as soon as some per- person stops talking, the next person starts, starts talking. And that's not how the conversation actually works, right? But I've edited out every one of those silences. Mm-hmm. And so there was a period in the first season where I, I was spending hours and hours doing that. And mm-hmm. I was just tightening it down to the the most... I could possibly reduce it to. Uh And then more recently, I've realized that's a disservice. That that I've got to find a kind of middle ground where, and I'll use you as an example. (laughs) You'll probably appreciate this. Uh I've been editing the Exterminate All the Brutes episode. Uh And in it, Andy asks a question about the subtextual critique of Catholicism in the documentary. And you respond to it. And it's a really difficult question because it's asking about a kind of subtextual element to begin with. So there's real interpretive work Mm -hmm. that has to be done that. Mm -hmm. And you also feel this is a personal question Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. relates to your history of faith, right? Mm -hmm. And that answer it was several minutes long <laughs> and within that several minutes there are there's a really fascinating excellent answer but it takes me like 900 minutes to get to it matt yeah but you started <laughs> three or four different times where where you were going to go with it right and the answer that'll be on the episode will be about half as long as what mm-hmm. you actually said mm-hmm. right but as an editor then you have this choice i want people to know Mm-hmm. that Sherry is working through something here. Like, mm-hmm. I want them to have the feeling that this question is really t- testing her and she's reaching for something here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I also don't want you to feel as though you're having to show your stress on yeah. the air, right? Yeah, 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 and yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. been the sort of work as an editor is always trying to find how do you get the audience to feel what the conversation felt, felt like. like, yeah. While also giving the people that you're conversing with, the, the guests, assurance that you are going to tighten up what they say <laughs> so yeah. that the, the really yeah. core brilliance of what yeah. you end up saying to that question yeah. is emphasized. Yes, this multi-part process where you're trying to give the listener an experience, but you're also trying to make sure that the person who you're having the conversation with, it's like the most precise precise moments that you want to present in the edits. Like I have this feeling sometimes when I do the sister scholar episodes with my three sisters, like I want to make sure that like those moments, we're not always on point. We're not always like correct. And there are a lot of these really thoughtful moments that one, you want to show that those things are happening. Like we, we all don't just sit down and have like thoughts at ready right like it's not there immediately but you also want to show that some thinking is happening and there's a little bit of struggle happening there and I think that part of it where I like I really like what you've said here about that it's showing the work of the thought too right giving the listener a feel for the conversation and a feel for how the people who are talking are thinking about the thing that's also a really fascinating part of the editing process right so starting from I'm going to take out all of the uhs and the ums to let me see if I can give a sense of what this conversation felt like is definitely a progression 
yeah. definitely a progression. And some of those uhs and mmms, even uh-huh. that's something that I've been realizing the more I've been doing this. The word like, the word you know, <laughs> th- these words do a lot of work sometimes. Mm-hmm. And as an editor, you end up having to make calculations about when are those verbal ticks mm-hmm. that we can get rid of and nothing will be lost. And that will be to the benefit of both the audience member and the speaker. Right? Mm-hmm. And when are those seeming verbal ticks? actually carrying a, a degree of meaning behind mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And I definitely, you know, I could say that there were several people who listened to er, to early episodes when I was in the, I'm going to get the, uh, you know, 120 minutes down to 40 <laughs> minutes stage. There were definitely several people who came to me who I had asked to be on the podcast and were like, I listened to a couple episodes. I don't feel like I'm eloquent enough. I don't feel like I speak well enough to be on the show. Mm-hmm. Because I've listened to these other scholars and they're so efficient, they're so thoughtful, they speak so quickly. And I was I, I kind of had to be like, that wasn't how it looked initially. And so now I'm really trying to find a balance, which is also, you gotta admit, it's also a balance for me, right? Because the the heavily edited thing takes a, a long time. The lightly edited thing still takes a long time. It does. Right? It does. And so yeah. What is the the right kind of level of attention that I want to give to the editing process? That's really a huge piece of my job, to be honest. How does the podcast form modify the relationship between the voice and the work of critique? If we follow Derrida's argument in the grammatology, the voice has always been privileged as a signifier of truth and presence in the Western philosophical tradition. So podcasts are nothing new. Or at least, to theorize speech in ascendant over the written word, contributing a particular liveness to the discourse of critical inquiry, is simply to inherit a conservative philosophical tradition that stretches from Plato to Rousseau one that always imagines writing as secondary, inferior, degraded, even tacky. The conservative idealization of speech, which Derrida tracks in Of Grammatology, carries over into the text which has helped to organize this series, Limited Incorporated. And while just a few episodes ago, I used that text to justify the leveling of multimedia criticism with entrenched print genres, I think it's imperative to recognize how easily that leveling might become inversion, an acquiescence to the conservative association of speech with authenticity and veracity, with common sense truth delivered by a firm masculine voice. In my own contribution to the MLA Roundtable, in which Kim and Sharonek first presented these questions, I focused on how broadcast radio and the discipline of communication studies, which emerged alongside it, reified this pre-existing conservative tradition by conditioning listeners to specific voices and deliveries, and then reproducing those voices through an exclusionary gatekeeping apparatus, often called media training. American radio set the norms for the disembodied voice across the global north, 
and also contributed to the linguistic imperialism and monolingualism that we discussed in episode four. Those norms have since been extended to commercial voiceover, cable news, advertising, audiobook narration, and thus far, mainstream podcasting. And they are incredibly influential on U.S. political speech as well. It isn't just tone and timbre. It is a specific notion of polish, the repetition of conventionalized rhythms and pacing, the evacuation of filler words, the 11th grade vocabulary which Americans have been trained to associate with disembodied expertise. Despite the fact that actual experts almost never talk this way, nor should they. Generic radio voice is bad for discourse. But audiences have been trained to believe that that's what the effective communication of good thinking must sound like. And if your ideas can't be so expressed, they don't deserve a wider audience. Generic radio voice is also, of course, white and male. Michelle Chihara's work has shown us how even on allegedly centrist podcasts like Planet Money, expertise is gendered and racialized and used to resuscitate the zombie economics of neoliberalism. A recent study found that more than two-thirds of the voices on podcasts are male-identified, which is, horrifically, even more gender-skewed than contemporary broadcast radio. Moreover, the more popular the podcast, the more troubling the trend becomes. When considering only the top 100 podcasts on Apple and Spotify over a week-long period in 2020, 80% of the voices were male. But despite their glaring underrepresentation, women report listening to podcasts in almost equal numbers to men. It is incumbent upon humanities podcasters that we expand the sonic palette of this medium, which is currently more regressive than Hollywood film, cable TV, or top 40 music, by accurately representing the fascinating polyphony of our professions. In the place of exclusionary and homogenizing media training, we should take advantage of all the editing and mixing magic increasingly at our disposal to make real experts sound like the best versions of themselves. Hopefully, contributing to changing presumptions about what intelligence and articulateness sound like. Anna Cornblue's high-octane arpeggiated lists, Rebecca Colesworthy's breathy punctuation, Sherry Harrison's patois exclamations, these are the kind of things you rarely hear on NPR or Slate podcasts and never on the American Family Radio and Excellence in Broadcasting Networks, which cast their net over rural and exurban America. Tell me, what is the most difficult episode that you've had to edit and why? Oh god! Uh, to the extent that you can. <laughs> you're yeah, this is. Good. I, I got to be a little bit careful here, of course. I, actually, I, this is an easy question. Our single most popular episode, the one that finally eclipsed your uh, eerie interview about Lovecraft Country, was Brooke Thomas mm-hmm. talking about the myths of Reconstruction. Mm-hmm immediately following the insurrection on January 6th. Somewhat to my surprise, that became a wildly popular episode. But Brooke Thomas was my 
dissertation director. He was my graduate school advisor. He's somebody who had a huge impact on my academic life and on my life personally. This is somebody who has, has been a mentor to me for many years. And it was very hard for me to think of him as a colleague and a peer. And he's somebody who talks at length, goes a mile a minute, whose work I hold in extremely high regard, who used to have control over my academic destiny. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to break from those those habits sometimes in there. Then having to go in there and say, I'm going to edit this person. Mm-hmm. Definitely that's one that I can remember. And also the content, right? Mm-hmm. At that moment, I, I thought having this conversation was was in, incredibly valuable. And to some extent, I was proven right because the episode was so popular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I'm taking this person who I have this perhaps somewhat awkward relationship with. I'm trying to edit them at a moment of intense volatility. Yes. And this is definitely an episode that, if it's received in a certain way, could create problems for the Center for Mark Twain Studies. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the things, of course, we have to be a little... I, I try not to be too wary of it. Right. It is the potential politicization of the, the work that we do, but it's something we have to be a little wary of and more wary of in those moments where already there is this, you know, intense mm-hmm. Intense, like, political conversation, right, violence, yeah. but also, you know, a, a microscope also being applied to whatever you produce as well. Where I wanted to start was something that is both very obvious in the formula of high theory and in the very title of high theory, but also something that I have noticed you building around, particularly in more recent episodes. And that is the idea, both that theory and that podcasting is a kind of drug both medicinal and narcotic, therapeutic and soporific, like a variety of different connotations to that druggishness, right? But you've been turning to that metaphor across readings of Plato and Derrida and Baudrillard and the Matrix. And I was hoping that you would talk about like why you think it's important to foreground the kind of pharmacon aspects of both critique uh, as a sort of subcategory of theory that you've prioritized, and then this medium, this specific medium of podcasting. Why do you think it's important for us to think about them in terms of their potentially narcotic, but also medicinal or therapeutic elements? I actually think the answer that is most relevant to this conversation is Okay, two things. One is the the sort of power relations that are inherent in theory, and the other is the pleasure. And that's actually, I think, one of the unresolved problems in Guillory's book is the idea of the pleasure of reading. He has a whole chapter on it, and it's something that I discussed with my cohort in a reading group that we did about Guillory's book. And it's 
Let me try to lay it out for you. His argument, it's going to be a little bit didactic, and then I'm going to try to get back to the drugs and high theory. Okay. So his argument is something like, there is a pleasure that lay readers, so readers who are not academics, take in the practice of reading. And one of the things that the work of criticism does is it holds that pleasure at a distance in order to analyze it. And that pleasure, there's a lot of things he says about the pleasure that readers feel, but I think the most interesting one to us here is that it's a pleasure of self-improvement. It's a moral pleasure. It's in fact exactly the symbolic opposite, one might say, of drugs in our culture, right? But nonetheless, it is a pleasure. And I think part of Guillory's misreading, I don't know, he's, it's hard to say that he's doing a misreading because he's so careful with his terms, but I think there is something he misses about the pleasure of critical practice. The pleasure of what we do when we are reading as critics. And he usefully says that like our professional reading practices are communal. And I think that is one of the sort of great sources of pleasure in reading in the academy. But the pleasure, you know, who gets at this quite well is Eve Sedgwick in her essay on paranoid reading, that the actual decoding mechanisms of paranoid reading, of symptomatic reading, of critique, there is a great pleasure in that, right? And I think that pleasure, that is part of the pharmacon pleasure that we are trying to get at, is this sort of thing that is inherent to theory that we recognize in the same way Sedgwick does in that essay is a little bit dangerous. Yeah, the connection there to the pleasures of decoding, of puzzling that are associated with paranoia, right? That that to try to bring the pieces together is something that has a cathartic promise to it, and that it does induce a kind of addictive, obsessive, all of the sort of negative connotations we might associate with drugs can also be associated with that will to deduce. Yeah, Yeah. but it's also one of the things I think Guillory is really right about is that it induces a sort of overestimation of aims that is really common to our critical discourse because the pleasure, as you said, of putting all the pieces together is that you might construct a theory of everything, right? Right. You might like not only understand, but like shape and like Mm -hmm. radically alter American politics by a close reading of Invisible Man, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know how many people read Invisible Man when it came out? five, right? I do think there is a a tension there also that gets back to the sort of the question of the public and the forms of criticism and the sort of roles of criticism in the world. Yeah. One of the things that you seem to be teasing out frequently in high theory is what is the discrepancy between the academy and the public? And how does the podcast serve in some ways to connect the two? Because I do think, as as you mentioned, this is something that's part of the discourse around criticism. It's also part of the discourse around the academic humanities, that this is a, a, a community 
And on one hand, one of the things that is in danger is the reproduction of that community, the reproduction of the various forms of sociality that have been associated with that community. Everything from the sort of faculty reading group and book series to conferences and symposium and various forms of academic travel that bring colleagues together to try to share their work and to thus improve it. One of the things at stake is the increasing pressure on the existing forms and the existing structures of academic discourse. And yet there is also a resistance in some ways to transposing that sociality into new media, whether that's the sort of college lecture being presented via Zoom, or whether that's the podcast or the video essay or whatever the case may be. How do you see podcasting and the creation of something as torn between the public and the academy as the Humanities Podcast Network would appear to be? The sort of creation of a structure that seems to emulate existing academic forms, but is also open access and trying to engage a public beyond just the campus. How do you grapple with that distinction that you frequently make as the, the academy versus the public? I would like to go back to the idea of the pleasure a little bit because, and I was thinking about this as Kim was speaking about situations where, again, this kind of communal joy of reading and analyzing something takes place. One that we are very familiar with, we all have memories of coursework and there is a thing that happens when there's this really good grad session where even if it's at six in the evening you exit that room feeling really exhilarated doesn't happen always but it does happen and makes you think okay i'm not a bad thing that i'm in grad school so i was thinking of what other models that i have personally thought about when i think of this kind of work that high theory hope i hope that it does and I think it does several other podcasts do as well, which is preserve in sonic information a kind of joy that is difficult to code in writing. So let's say you meet a scholar that whose work you really have a wonderful conversation, then that conversation becomes an interview published somewhere. Something does get lost, which is fine because there are gains as well when it's codified and half sentences are made into full sentences. But at the same time, something else is preserved, I think, by the sound information. And I'm, I'm being very vague about this, but I was thinking of what other kind of models of public production of this kind of pleasure that I have thought about. Two comes to mind. One is romanticism is not my field, but the kind of the sociality that romantic poetry with a capital R is thought to have produced there was a lot of drug taking there as well. But at the same time, poets talking to each other and editing each other's work and joining in full-throated singing under whatever, trees in the summer. I'm mainly thinking of Jane Campion's Bright Star. I love that movie. So that's one kind of very gestalt that it was in my mind. And the other was, you know, when I was doing my master's in JNU, Jawaharlal University, a very politically active campus, and there was a lot of reading that happened in union rooms and reading that wasn't pertinent per se to our strikes or our movement because we were just reading in classes, bringing those readings. And so me as an English MA would talk to someone in history, someone in sociology. And this was happening in that space of political agitation. 
and that kind of sudden kind of pleasure that got produced in both cases i think uh, i don't have access to the sounds of romantic conversations but i did have access to the sounds of those conversations and in this past two years of hetheria i have thought about these two again these are very vague comments um, kim please say more constructive things I don't have constructive things to say. I can tell you that morphine wasn't regulated in 19th century Britain. No. <laughs> and that Shelley, what is it? Shelley had had an affair with his sister-in-law. <laughs> These things you should cut out. <laughs> she did, yes. Yeah. Mary Shelley's sister. Um, <laughs> Twain actually writes about that. Yeah, let me shift back to that question of like the sound in the room. This is another thing that I really appreciate about what you are trying to address through high theory and then in starting to theorize podcasts themselves in the papers that you've done recently at MLA and ACLA, and I presume in the way in which you're building the Humanities Podcast Network is that we have to take seriously the adaptation from a predominantly print form or a predominantly text form to a sonic form to an audio form and that the sound of the discourse matters and as Serenek was saying something is undoubtedly lost and I think most academics are more keenly aware of what might be lost than they are about what might be gained and so I would like to ask what do you see as what is gained by trying to keep academic discourse, archive academic discourse, use the podcast form to keep academic discourse or critical discourse sonic, or in some cases to take things that otherwise might have been distributed textually and turn them into an audio form. I think we can all probably agree that some things are lost, but what is it that is being gained? I'm going to begin answering this question by just stating there's a very big accessibility issue here obviously. And I don't want to kind of apotheosize sound in any way. Yes, it can do special things, but then print can do special things. What's really easy to capture in sound is the unfinishedness of discourse. And personally, you can call this laziness. I have myself called this laziness. But it's possible to kind of battle the toxicity of the idea of rigor in sound, I think. Something that I have tried to do in the interviews that I've done and, you know, we have interviewed tenured professors. We have also interviewed, yes, we have interviewed undergrads. And people from both constituencies have said, you know, I don't really like the sound of my voice. I'm uncomfortable. And in my own small way, when I have tried to kind of make them comfortable, I have also tried to own the many imperfections and like unfinished thoughts. And when we edit high theory, we would often sacrifice fully articulated thoughts in favor of very jangled banter, which I think is somehow important to building that moment in that discourse. Yeah, the main thought that I have, and I agree with what you're saying about the unfinished nature and also the casualness, perhaps, yeah. or the sort of positive antidote to rigor. But the other thing I would say is that academic discourse is a very oral form. Yeah. And historically, it has been. Yeah, it's in fact a oral method of communicating knowledge to the university for the most part, though it has a strong textual tradition as well. 
And that presents a lot of accessibility issues, but also that was one of our goals in making this podcast, right? That's one of the things we like to say when we tell the origin story is that Sharonic and I shared an office and we wanted to continue the conversations that we were having there when we no longer shared the same physical space because COVID hit. And also, I think even earlier when I was trying to think about learning about the medium of the podcast and how to make these things, one of my motivations was thinking about how so much of what I love about the Academy is attending lectures and sitting in seminar rooms and participating in these oral forms and that I wanted to try to make something a little bit more solid and permanent that would reflect that. That solidity and permanence is part of the paradox here is that we might think about things like the seminar room, right? Like the office conversation, like the the graduate student party in which you end the evening sitting around talking to one another, perhaps drinking too much wine or smoking too much dope. That is a wonderful part of the academic community. Those spaces definitely create knowledge. There's no way around them. They are also almost designed to be somewhat ephemeral. And so what happens when you start to try to make an archive out of what is designed to be, as as Sharonik said, like an unfinished thing, that the conversation is always in process, always unfinished. What does it mean to then try to use that as the sort of building blocks for something that is going to exist in this digital space, in this digital archive, and is presumably going to be consumed over a longer period of time? Is there a kind of inherent illusoriness (laughs) to that? And, And how do you reconcile? both the desire to imitate that in-process collaborative thing and the fact that you are doing that. We are doing that right now Mm -hmm. with the knowledge that it's going to become some kind of end product and that maybe that end product is going to increasingly have the status that we confer to other things like essays and articles and books. Maybe one of the things I can say in response to that is that That question of status, the institutional status of podcasts, is something that has been a topic of much debate at the Humanities Podcast Network. And I think there are um, certainly legitimate reasons that academics who make podcasts want their labor to be recognized by search committees, tenure and promotion committees, and I think editorial boards, so on and so forth. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if we want to think explicitly about the job market, this might get us back to the question of the public humanities and the crisis in the humanities and what we think might solve that. But, and Sharonik, I think, can speak more directly to that question because he works in public humanities, not because he's on the job market. I'm sorry, dreading returning to the job market in the fall. But that aside, this question of institutional recognition. So there are very good reasons why academics who work in universities want their podcast to be recognized. And there are also pretty good reasons that people don't want them to go through peer review because gatekeeping 
in the academy. One of the brilliant, amazing things about podcasts is that it circumvents that. In some ways, you could say that this is the same problem as the sort of casualization of labor and the question of being an Uber driver, right? Although I think there's a right answer to that question. Uber drivers should definitely be considered employees, okay? But I'm not convinced on the flip side that podcasts should be included in tenure dossiers and should go through peer review. But does it need to go through peer review in order to be included in tenure? No, it's true. And high theories on my CV. Yes, high theories. I did my first round on the academic job market where I talked about public humanities and the podcast a lot. And again, there's a kind of distinction between interest and what I think is genuine interest and institutional legitimacy and legibility and the latter being more of a factor in how it goes. But I also do think that in terms of thinking about podcasts as a public, I'm currently finishing up the Public Humanities Fellowship and when we began, we had an orientation where people talked about like what different kinds of publics are your students are a public, your colleagues are a public. Yes, absolutely. But keeping that in mind, I also do think that in so far as podcasts are public, humanities artifacts, we need to keep adding to those definitions of publics. And so when we think about job market there, we have to think about not just tenure track job markets, but other kinds of jobs as well. I feel I have gone very far from Matt's original question. But that actually is the point, right? This is one of the things that the podcast allows, the sort of tangents of thought that veer from an original question or some sort of original collision. Those are part of the product. And that was what I was asking originally is, what does it mean to take something that is spontaneous, improvisational, unfinished, as you said earlier, that, that has rough edges, and try to polish it in some way, or at least present it as that sort of finished product. Yeah, yeah, and I also don't want to end with an idea of an organic fragment, because as Kim was saying, it's a lot of labor, and if the finished product, and I was thinking about like the way that I listen to podcasts, and the kind of the joy that I feel when there is actual back and forth, and there are podcasts that I listen to for a kind of information transfer, uh, right. So, for example, there is this, and there are so many problems with this podcast. I have to admit that I do listen to it. BBC does this podcast called In Our Time with Melvin Bragg. It was in a radio program once, long time running. I can tell you the problems because it. I think it has only just awoken to the possibilities of postcolonial theory in the past five years or something. But anyway, they invite three experts and they discuss a topic. And the discussion is very information heavy and there is very little back and forth. But will I listen to a quick episode before I have to teach a text? I do, yes, absolutely, on the train, because I don't have enough time to go back and read all of my notes. So that's one kind of information transfer that's happening. But then there's other podcasts that I listen to because I enjoy the conversational kind of energies that to me as a listener might seem like this organic thing, but actually is heavily curated and a lot of labor has gone into producing it. 
And in a small way, both those aspects, I think, are there in our podcasts. Because sometimes I will listen to a hype theory episode in order to teach something. But sometimes I enjoy that thing that it's difficult to represent in tenure documents. What we see participating in the meetings of the Humanities Podcast Network is that it's both a lag. You know, the MLA Public Humanities Guide came out, what was last year? Or maybe the year before which talks about podcasts. I would say that's a lag because humanities criticism is happening in podcast form for a decade by now. And especially with the academic recognition of what podcasts are and what podcasts can do is the chicken and egg thing. Because again, like we are advocating for a kind of institutional recognition that let's say a journal article might have, which is definitely a form of legit criticism that is academically legible. At the same time, so much of water has passed under the bridge in that like there's so much already out there. And this is something that we are grappling with because as you talked about book talk and video essays or even like reviews on YouTube as this like immense wealth of criticism that's already there. It's just that it's not cited in academic essays and should be. So going back to Guillory's book about what kind of diagnosing chronological patterns in the history of academic criticism is a complicated problem because similar patterns exist outside. We have to see them too. That's a great thing to add to the conversation. What I thought you were going to say, which I think is also relevant here, is at this particular juncture, what I'm seeing is a simultaneous recognition that podcasts are valuable to humanities academics, including those who are coming out of the sort of more prestige institutions and the more prestige paths to publication. They're actually eager to promote their work on podcasts and stuff like that. They recognize that there's going to be a scale of listenership there and a scale of engagement that they may not get in the other venues for critical reception of their work while simultaneously they are not taking podcasts and other new media venues seriously as part of the apparatus of the academy and the things that count when it comes to getting jobs and getting promotions and getting tenure. At our particular moment, there seems to be a sort of collision between recognition of podcasts as part of the space in which academic and critical production takes place, and also still a kind of delegitimization of it as part of what counts. What does criticism do when it is sounded out and published in digital formats? Let me begin by asking another question. What can the humanities podcast do, not only as a finished product, but in the labor that goes into its production? The Humanities Podcast Network, an organization that we co-founded with colleagues in academic podcasting, we advocate for the building of institutional systems of legibility. We seek to define podcasts as lasting contributions to scholarship, from grant allocations to tenure dossiers. Simultaneously, we imagine the extra institutional future of the Humanities Podcast, and not least for our own High Theory. In each episode of High Theory, we ask our guests how a given topic will save the world. Guests imagine maximalist scopes for their research, refute the discourse of salvation, 
and laugh at the apparent absurdity of the question. But we hope in this way to also return the speaker and the listener to the form of critique and the institutions whose borders influence their reading praxis, putting pressure on their definitional and instrumental limits. The putative limits of theory have been the subject of debates on social media, popularly termed method wars, which have been astutely diagnosed by scholars like Kyla Vazana Tompkins as resource wars. Continuing the task of creative and critical reading in humanities departments with terrible financial insecurities pushes us past our limits. The pluralization of ends and proliferation of means for the work of theory requires us to redraw the boundaries of academic labor. I want to ask a question about your work as a writer mm-hmm. and a writer who is a writer who writes around research and scholarship and how that informs your approach to the podcast, like outside of trying to make sure that it's connected to Mark Twain in some right. way, right? Like, how does that work inform what you do on The American Vandal? Yeah, it's such a great question, Sherry. And particularly as we imagine how this is going to go from the initial seasons where we weren't sure whether it was going to be a permanent thing mm-hmm. to being maybe a permanent piece of our programming. Mm-hmm. I, My vote course, would be for yes, by the way. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt that mm-hmm. that's, there's go, it's going to continue in some form. Mm-hmm. But of course, in that first season, and, and to some extent in the second season as well, I was just sort of like, I'm going to call upon, to a large degree, my friends, people who I want to talk to, people yeah, who I yeah. think will say yes. Yeah. And of course, many of those people were people who share my interest, whether they're in the Twain Studies community or they're in the sort of broader subfields that I engage with, especially Lytton Econ and Media Studies. But as we move to the second season, one of the things I I recognize is, okay, if this is going to represent the Center for Mark Twain Studies, but I'm the producer, it can't go back to my bailiwicks over and over and over again, right? and, And so I think one of the things in the long run that will be great for me as a scholar because of the podcast is that it's going to force me to engage with scholars who otherwise I might not really get to know Mm -hmm. and explore fields that are unfamiliar to me. And that means reading books that I might not otherwise read. And certainly there's an added time commitment and labor commitment there. But I think it's one that I'm inclined to think is worth it Mm -hmm. because I I have a tendency towards interdisciplinary research anyway. And so this is maybe a natural extension of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How about you? One of the things that I don't have a way to explain it yet, but I'm insistent on is I actually don't want this to be a podcast for academics. I actually don't want to have that as my only audience. Right. I want people who are not necessarily the people who are the knowledge producers and all that to be able to enjoy this in a way. But also, it's weird. One of the things that you said just now was thinking about how season two will be different or was different or is different from the first one. And not just mining your friends and things that you like talking about, but also being more deliberate in how it's shaped and that kind of thing. It's very similar for me. Like this second season that I'm working on now, I feel like I want to be more deliberate. I want to repeat particular elements. But it very much also speaks to 
the way that, you know, again, ironically, I don't want this to reflect scholarship, but just like ironically how public facing my scholarship has become. Right. right. And so to even say that I don't necessarily want it to be this kind of podcast, I mean, New Black Gothic, which is the piece that I am most cited for, right. <laughs> is this public facing piece. And surprise, I like public facing media like podcasts. Fundamentally, too, one of the things that I, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about is what will this work look like as a part of a dossier, as a part of considerations for promotion and tenure, right? More of a philosophical question, I think. I like so much of this is because we enjoy it, right? I I don't right. doubt that you enjoy this, Matt. It is work for the center, but also it's a thing that you like doing. But looking back at the body of work that you've produced with Mark Twain Studies through this podcast, looking back at the interdisciplinarity of it, I wonder a lot about how what we think about as counts will get changed by some of this labor that we've done in a different way during the pandemic and it's a very roundabout way of getting to that question but do you think about this matt because you should be near to promotion right like how are you thinking about this for the peculiarities of my position mean that a big part of my job is service to the center for mark twain studies and Uh so this is going to count for me right and it's very easy for me to represent all the things that i do as resident scholar at the center for mark twain studies and those are included in my tenure and promotion package and i have very little worry that elmira college and the center for mark twain studies value them Uh but the question you're asking i think is particularly important to me because of my guests, right? That if I want to continue to have people say yes, uh, people who increasingly right now feel under incredible pressure, time pressure, deadline pressure. One of the things the pandemic has clearly done across academia is it's made the things that we do just more costly in terms of our labor and time. Teaching is harder under these conditions. Doing research is harder. For most people, writing is harder. Finding time to read is harder, right? All of these things are under intense pressure right now. And I definitely think that as we move out of that, one of the things that you know we need to be lobbying for, fighting for, is that this kind of public-facing work is really meaningful, valuable, and should count. Going on podcasts, doing interviews, writing for Los Angeles Review of Books or other kind of public-facing websites, right? Those things are actually really good for the scholar, for professionalization. They're also good for the institution. Mm -hmm. You're getting cited more is supposedly something that benefits University (laughs) of Missouri, right? Because so much has been disrupted during the pandemic, one of the things that we we can certainly be attentive to as we transition to the aftermath is this kind of stuff. I, so another example is just this morning I went to CNI's talk sponsored by Northwestern with uh, Lee Claire LeBerg and uh, oh, Joseph oh. Gian uh, and Mark Grief were all responding. It was like, oh, this is all, like, the fact that I can do this do is that. awesome. 
right? I look forward to going back to some conferences and to having people on my campus or going to people's campuses as an invited speaker. I look forward to those things. And I think those things are really valuable and meaningful and should not go away. I also don't want the opportunity to go hear CNI talk at Northwestern to go away. And I'm certainly not one of those people who's going to say not an ed tech carnival barker. I'm not going to say that everything (laughs) has been just as good during the pandemic. No, no, no. Not not at all, but some aspects of it. The podcast. This part. This part. More of us doing this. More of us thinking about how to make the things that we think about accessible and understandable. Zoom Zoom roundtables. Like those things I do want to stick around to some extent. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm definitely with you on that. You you have to give the caveat and the cliched caveat. Now Zoom fatigue is real, right? But also the ability to have those people. Joe John is in California. And, you know, everybody in all of these different places, like I've been able to have conversations with people in Jamaica, in the UK, and like all kinds of different places all at once. And we get to talk to each other simultaneously and in the same space at a much lower cost and not just like monetary cost, but just like at a lot lower cost than we generally. Carbon cost. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Some of these dimensions should remain. I think it's just looking into how many of us have opted for these kinds of conversations. Like I guess conferences and talks always happen, but now we get to go to more things because they are happening on our computers. I think there are ways that even if we don't force it, like institutions will have to reckon with this kind of labor too, because this is just how people are participating and how we've done it in the last year or so. People who are on tenure committees, review committees, those kind of things, they're going to have to take seriously the, this kind of labor for the people mm-hmm. who were doing it during the pandemic. Yeah. Right? And once that's been done, it means they got to take it seriously thereafter, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's really important for us to lobby for. And, mm-hmm. and certainly an institution like the Center for Marketing T- Studies can throw our institutional merit behind it and mm-hmm. say, we value these things. We're going to put you on our website. We're going to list you in our official documentation and that hopefully will help to legitimize it. Yeah. So your podcast that you run is one that's affiliated with an institution and it, it does all of this institutional work. I wonder what a podcast that Matt made for himself would look like. Have you thought about that? What would Matt's podcast be like? Would it be very different from this one? Or When you launched yours, of course, that was one of the things that, that I thought about. Is like, As you said, you don't want to think about this as an academic medium. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm in utter agreement with that. I hope that a lot of the episodes that we produce although they almost always feature guests who come from the academic background. I hope that they're accessible to a a range of audiences. And I think one of the things I like about this medium is it forces academics to engage in a discourse that is not what they do when they give panel papers that it is conversational, there's opportunities for humor, there's a tendency to explain concepts carefully. I would assume a lot of the sort of 
personas that we all have when we're in the classroom mm -hmm. transition to some extent to the podcast medium more directly than the personas we have when we're giving invited talks mm -hmm. or we're doing conference panels. Mm -hmm. I think the most direct relationship is when we're all sitting around for coffee or drinks somewhere. <laughs> like conference that's really conference that's bar. Really what somebody, I want to bring to the somebody podcast. Somebody should start yeah. a podcast called listen, this I'm giving everybody an idea right now. Somebody should start a podcast called the conference bar. Yeah. And that yeah. use that ethos, <laughs> organize yes. guests. <laughs> that is truly, you've seen the sort of boilerplate message that mm -hmm. I send out. That's one of the things I try to gesture towards is mm -hmm. like the best social experiences that you can think about. And obviously a lot of social experiences associated with conferences are not Not great, the best right? ones, nope. But the best ones, like when you really are enjoying yourself, mm -hmm. talking about issues related to your work with people who are informed but under a more casual setting, mm -hmm. that's what I want. Right? Mm -hmm. That's what mm -hmm. I want. And I really feel people who are a fly on the wall for those kinds of conversations, they don't have to be academics. No. Right? no. They, you don't need a lot of training. We we bring that mm -hmm. knowledge, that education, that training, but we're friendly yeah. people, right? We're funny people too, and right? Potentially we, funny people. We are potentially funny people. I feel like this is yeah. one of the coolest things about the academic podcast too though is because there is a presumption that it won't only be listened to by academics that you don't have to tell your guests like this shouldn't look like the conference talk or this shouldn't look like the keynote. You don't actually have to say it needs to be accessible. It's almost as though it's just like automatic. People are just like, I'm understanding my audience. I'm understanding that my audience is probably more like my classroom than anything else. And so the best of our teacher instincts come out in those situations. And that for me, that's one of the things I'm still trying to work on is as the host, how do you enter an episode mm -hmm. with a set of questions that you think will steer conversation in interesting ways to have a kind of formula that you're trying to shape the episode with, mm -hmm. but also acknowledging that you really want it to be free form yes. to a large degree. And yes. I, I, I'm curious how you have thought about that with The Sherry Show, mm -hmm. especially since to some extent the Vandal episodes, at least part of them is to promote people's work. So it's very mm -hmm. easy for me to shape the episode to mm -hmm. some extent by saying, I read this thing of yours or I'm mm -hmm. familiar with this part of your work. And so those are easy entry point questions for me. But if you're trying not to over emphasize, yeah. then how do you think about shaping the episode? This is also a cause of great anxiety for me because sometimes I feel like I have a page here of questions that I've prepared for you, but eight out of 10 times, I completely abandon the questions. Like I just go with the flow of the conversation and I have in my mind a thing that I want to get out of it, but it just, the questions are there in case conversation flags, but I, I just tend to move with what the conversation does. Yeah. And it's anxiety wracking sometimes because I talk to different kinds of people and about different kinds of things. One episode where I talked to my friend and colleague, Julie, about pandemic food preparation habits, right? It was one of those things where Julie was just totally prepared, had pages and pages of notes and I was just freestyling, going along with the flow. And she's like, girl, I prepared for this. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? But it 
also just was this really great conversation and an ease to it that mm-hmm. I think is a very big part of what you've emphasized here too about feeling like you're participating in the conversation that you're listening to as well. You're also sitting at the bar in the restaurant or in the park where this conversation is happening and you're listening because you're super interested and nodding along and saying yeah and that kind of thing in a way that is participatory. So yeah, I, I tend to prepare before but often end up abandoning what I've set out. Yeah, you want to stay in the moment. You want Mm -hmm. to listen to what your guests are saying. You want each question to build upon what they've already said to show that engagement and have it be a natural conversation Mm -hmm. without getting away from the fact that each episode has a kind of topic, a theme. It can't can't be a bar conversation because you can't jump to whatever. I got to remind myself, I'm talking to Matt about making podcasts here. That's what I'm talking, being an academic and making a podcast. I remember one conversation I had for the last season with my younger sister, Allison, and this was one of the first times that I was just like, let me just abandon the script because I realized that something that was happening was I was learning a thing about her in that moment. When you think you can't learn anything else new about your sister and she was learning something about her process that was tangential to what we wanted to talk about. But then after this moment happens in the episode, after she thinks through her obsession, not her obsession, but like her sense of creating films that are suspenseful and have horror going on, have tied back to this very specific moment moment in national pantomimes in Jamaica where there's always a scary moment where you get the kids to scream and that kind of thing and like that moment in every single one that we watched for like 12 years each of us growing up continues to seep into how she makes films right now and it was just like a thing that she had never realized and at the end of this really wonderful moment, I had to just be like, oh, wait, this episode is not about this. So let me backtrack and figure out. But, you know, this happens in class all the time, too, oh, of right? Yeah. So, like, it's almost as though you have the built-in skill to make the digression. Yeah, and a certain amount of digression, a certain amount of tangents is, I think, mm-hmm. is essential to the medium. Mm-hmm. And, and again, to go back to the sort of the editing process, like that's one of the hardest questions for me. I think this episode is a little too long. I can't get it down to where I think it should be mm-hmm. through just getting rid of the silences and mm-hmm. the obvious places. There's parts of the conversation that are going to have to go. And what really is tangential? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's easy to find those moments, but most of the times it's hard because embedded within them, if I'm doing my work right, is something that leads to other parts of the conversation, Mm -hmm. right? So you don't want to lose those markers. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm working on when that's happening during the conversation itself, trying to step in and gently steer, which is not something that necessarily comes naturally to me. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. And then Mm -mm. once I have the recording, as I'm going through it the first time, keeping track of some places where I think, if I need to, this is some place I can come back to and and think think about what parts of it could go. That's especially hard because I I don't know if you've had this experience, but for me, 
One of the great things about the medium is as people warm up, as they get comfortable, the conversation gets better, yes. right? Yes. And so when you're editing, you need the first part because that's what generates the topic usually, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but also the best material often comes much later in the episode. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. how do you get us as quickly as possible to, to the person moment. being comfortable? Mm-hmm without losing the content mm-hmm. which you need to understand what they're saying later on yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we are right at the time that i'm going to take from you today to do this but i wanted to ask one last question about i've got one for you too. you got one for me yeah right. i do yeah all right I'll, I'll ask mine and then you can ask me yours is this something you'd encourage other academics to do Yes. <laughs> That's with, not yet. <laughs> yeah. With the caveat, time management is such a huge part of mm-hmm. our job, mm-hmm. right? And as we talked about earlier, you need to be getting credit for it in yes. some way, shape, or form, mm-hmm. whether that's mm-hmm. professionalization credit, whether that's paid, mm-hmm. whatever the case mm-hmm. may Absolutely. be. Absolutely. You need to be getting credit for it, and you need to go in knowing this is going to be a major commitment of time and energy. And I learn a ton from it. There's mm-hmm. a lot of good takeaways okay. that are beneficial to me. It's a big thing to add on to an already full plate, particularly if you don't have an institution Supporting that in advance is going to say, we want you to do this. We mm-hmm. value this. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, what I will say is, if you don't have that support, you should still come on the Sherry Show. You should still you do should it. Still come, you should still, you should still come you on should, the American Vandal. You, you should get involved do it. in some way. Do it. Yeah. If you're like me, who I think that I should say here is, I don't have institutional support for this. The $40 a month that this costs me to make, because it does cost money to make. Yeah. The $40 a month that it costs me to make this comes out of my own pocket. But I just, I love getting to talk to people like Matt about all kinds of things on a daily basis, even if I don't feel like doing it. It does my soul good to have these conversations every once in a while. There's something about doing this kind of work of editing these things that it's a decompression. It's actually therapeutic to cut spaces out of conversation. Yeah, yeah it is. No, I, I, I know exactly what you're saying. And although we've compared the mm-hmm. the podcast conversation to other, to other mediums, to conferences, to the bar, to, to teaching, there is nothing actually like it. There's nothing like it. The way in which this toes the line between the personal and the professional, I think, is truly unique. Mm -hmm. And so I I think it is very generative and very Mm -hmm. valuable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's always surprising what people end up liking, too. I just like tweets. Like, you never know what tweets people are going to like. (laughs) But you just keep making the content. And even the the episodes that don't find a huge audience, Mm -hmm. they always find a few people who, this was really what they wanted. This was their thing. Yeah, that this, this is really... what they needed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. My question for you is going into making the American Vandal, I had already had many conversations with my friend and frequent collaborator, Michelle Chihara, about the podcast medium. Mm-hmm. And she has wonderful work, scholarly work about mm-hmm. podcasts and particularly about the podcast medium 
in the ways in which it, it intersects with race and gender. Yes. Right? And so going in for me, this was always a question. Is it going to be harder to get guests who are women, guests who are people of color? And is there something intrinsic to the medium that potentially caters to the white male voice? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so I, I wondered, I know that you're familiar with some of those critiques. Yes, One of yeah. them she published right alongside right your alongside writing. That. Um, neoliberal, the seven neoliberal arts, right? Yeah. For the uh, post-45 contemporaries. Um, I'm not sure this is going to directly answer that question, but I think about a lot is audience. I'm not even sure The Sherry Show has found its robust audience yet or a consistent audience. But a thing that I think about a lot is exactly that, the intersection of race, gender, also national identity like that's a part of why i don't just want right. this to be an academic podcast like i want people in jamaica to be listening to this and saying hey that's one of our own in a way that in, in another format it that wouldn't happen but also their expectations of what a podcast called the sherry show by sherry should look like or should sound like right and things that i should talk about and of course i definitely jump into some of those spaces where i am expected to be but i also try to jump into some of those spaces where i'm not expected to be this is why i appreciate invitations that come from you, for example, from things like the American Vandal podcast to talk with Ignacio Sanchez Prado and Andy Hope Eric about Exterminate All the Brutes because it's like a counterintuitive way of thinking about how people occupy space, the types of things they should be talking about, the types of people who should be listening to them talk about those things. I think this is one of the reasons why your project is very dear to me because it's disruptive. <laughs> It's disruptive in really productive ways in terms of how it configures having people come into the medium and talk through this medium and displacing the sense that these kinds of conversations should only or are only catering to maybe a white male audience, maybe an American audience, and that if there is a black woman producing content, it can only be about right. the struggle, quote unquote, or in some other kind of stereotypical way of thinking about the configuration of the show. I think in those ways what shape the Sherry show will take or continue to morph into is always thinking through all of the spaces that I occupy because of who I am. So I think that's my answer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and it is my sincere pleasure to have my friend Walt Hunter on the podcast today. In The New Heroism, the goal is to transcend individual life with its petty pains and loves in favor of the dazzling collective. This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University. And I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Sean O'Sullivan, who has selected a short story by Jennifer Egan called Black Box. Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz. And I'm Abram Van Ingen. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Riverhead Books presents Marlon and Jake Read Dead People a podcast with Marlon James and Jake Morrissey. 
there is something very rich in tearing a book apart. I don't want to spend my eyeballs on these 300 pages. You really don't have to read any novel, except maybe Moby Dick. I'm stunned hearing you say that. The first book I got was Journal of a Plague Year. The feel-good book of the pandemic, ladies and gentlemen. I know. I'm a reverse size queen when it comes to literature, <laughs> I guess. Okay, I love this more and more. Hi there. Welcome to this episode. I'm Jake Morrissey. And I'm Marlon's James, as I said before. Frankie's. You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Selected Essays, a podcast series from The Point magazine about essays you should read but probably haven't. Each episode, we'll be talking with writers about an essay that's influenced one of their own. My name is Jess Swoboda, and I'm here with my co-host, Zach Vine. Hey, thanks for joining us. This week, we have Ryan Ruby on the show. Hello, and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies and produced in partnership with Public Books, an online magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship. Hello, and welcome to One Bright Book, the podcast where three friends read all of the books taking them one book at a time. I'm Dorian Suber, and I'm here as usual with my co-hosts Francis Evangelista and Rebecca Husty. And this time we're here to talk about Margaret Lawrence's 1960s. Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon producing. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, all you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. And today's episode... Hello and welcome to Pod 45, the podcast companion to Post 45 Contemporaries. I'm your host, Michael Doherty. Post 45 is a community of scholars working on literature and culture from, as the name suggests, the post-1945 period. And Contemporaries is our online platform where writers converse with each other more directly and informally than in traditional academic publications. They do so in curated conversations about contemporary culture, which we call clusters. Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today, we are going to be talking about James Fenimore Cooper's 1826 novel, The Last of the Mohicans, which is about whatever D.H. Lawrence tells us it's about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, not really. Yeah, both yes and no. It's a libertarian fantasy about magical Indians and <laughs> whiteness. Welcome to the 
American Vandal. From the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College, I'm Matt Siebel. For more about this episode, including a complete bibliography, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash podcasting criticism or subscribe to my Substack. Thank you for listening.